Well, welcome to week two of the book of Revelation and a couple principles that we just want to kind of remind you of. Encourage you, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and watch it again. It just kind of lays some context uh, for really what we're going to be studying over these uh, next few weeks together and I really have looked forward to it as we go. Now, as we jump into this, today we're going to start getting into some interpretation of what we think this apocalyptic teaching means. We're going to get into the area of some timelines. And just remind you as we share some of these things, you may have a differing view of uh, how we interpret some of these things, which we just want to say it's really okay. We really believe eschatology or the study of end times is really what I would call a secondary doctrine. There are these primary doctrines that make us orthodox, which makes us Christian, right? That faith comes through faith in Christ alone, the, the virgin birth, the inspiration of Scripture. These are things we plant the flag on the hill over. There are secondary doctrinal issues like how we understand the work of the Holy Spirit or maybe some areas of baptism or even these areas of eschatology that we probably say we could could have some differing views and still consider each other to be brothers and sisters in Christ. So what we're going to do today is the challenge which Christians have faced for thousands of years as they try to understand John's vision, Um, but we may have some different thoughts as we jump into that as we go. Today, as we kind of lay into that, I want to just start, though, with just share with you about how I personally have reached the conclusions and really how our denomination has reached our conclusions about how we interpret uh, the book of Revelations as we get started. And we really would, here's your church word for today, we really would call this hermeneutics, or another way is just the principles of interpreting the Bible. Because your hermeneutics determine your interpretation, right? So it's really important. How are we understanding the Bible and how do we read it? Because how we read it determines the outcome that we're going to have. For example, if you believe that parts of the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, should be read as an allegory, then that's probably going to lead you to an amillennial view of, of end times, which really says the book of Revelation simply symbolizes what is happening right now. That, that the, for example, the four horsemen that are mentioned in the tribulation are actually just a symbol for the four things that have really threatened mankind since the beginning of time. War and death and disease and all of these things are symbolic of what's happening. So an amillennial, they view it as an allegory, would believe that the tribulation that we'll read about really is not a future event. It's really just describing what our current status is. All right, let, let me give you another example. I think the challenge of interpreting Scripture that way as an allegory is trying to determine what parts of the Bible we treat as an allegory and when do we read it literally, right? Genesis. Literal seven days? Or is it figurative eras of creation? Jonah. Did he, was he really swallowed by a big fish or was that an allegory that represents something else that's there? I, I talked to somebody last week after a sermon who simply said this. Pastor, I actually know a, pa- a preacher who is now teaching that the book of Matthew is an allegory rather than reading it literally. So I always get nervous, right, when it's you and I who decide what is literal and what is an allegory. So I, can I propose to you today as we jump into this series, propose to you this, that the best way to interpret all scripture is literal and natural except in places where the text is obviously allegorical, poetic, or figurative. All right, easiest and best way. Just what it says, what it says. Read it naturally. There are certainly places that we understand. This is imagery, and there are certain other places out there. That's why when we start, I always try to give you some historical context to what we're reading, because I really believe this, that if we... We need to read it like the original audience heard it, and as they read it, that's the natural way to interpret what was being told to this. So that's the first principle. Let me give you one other. This one's really critical for what we're studying in the book of Revelation. The second uh, hermeneutical principle is simply this. is a place in understanding on Scripture that runs it through, I just call it, it's a dispensational approach. 
Let me just give it to you. Here's your other big word for today. Dispensationalism. It's the theological system that emphasizes the literal interpretation of the Bible, prophecy, and recognizes the distinction between Israel and the church. Two big keys, all right? Let me jump in. It's a literal interpretation of Scripture. So when we see in the next couple of weeks, tribulation, seven years, I believe it's literally a seven years. But it makes a distinction between Israel and the church. And you'll see a little bit here on the screen behind me. The key is seeing this, that God works uniquely different with the church and the nation of Israel. The Old Testament, you'll see here on the left, we have all these times where God's made covenant and promises to the nation of Israel, to Abraham, right? That you're gonna have land and descendants and blessings. And we're gonna see that some of those prophecies are gonna be fulfilled in Revelations chapter 20 during the millennial reign. We also know that this, that the Jews rejected Jesus, right? And there's a shift in the start of that. And so you'll see a little bit here on the timeline, when Jesus came at the cross, at some point, the Bible says came first for the Jews and then the Gentiles, in their rejection of Jesus, now we see a movement or focus changes where God begins to work with Gentiles, the church, Acts chapter 2. So post that of the cross, that's the, what we call the church age. That's what we are living in today, where God is uniquely working through the church. And that emphasis is going to stay and remain until the event that we're going to study today, the event we call the rapture. That moment in time when the church is caught up with the Lord in, in the sky, and the emphasis at that time will return to Israel for the final time. Okay? So we're going to see it starts there, the Old Testament times, rejection, church age comes, God's emphasis on the church until the moment of the event we're talking about the rapture when the church is removed, and at that point, the focus will go back to the Israel, uh, to the Jews at that time. And it's really interesting. You don't hear the church mentioned anywhere in the book of Revelation after chapter three because there's a focus and, and a change, and we'll look into that. Let me give an example. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 says this. Lest you be wise in your own eyes, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial, keyword, partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The church age... And in this way, all Israel will be saved, that is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Two key reads. Partial, right? So there's a partial hardening. Not complete, partial, the nation of Israel. God moves until it says the way. Until the fullness of the Gentiles, church age. When that is complete, then we come back to the nation of Israel with how they'll be saved. So the purpose of the end times, key principle, key point, is really this, is to give Israel one more chance to be saved. All right, now there's gonna be many, thousands who are saved that are not Jewish by nature, but we know Revelation chapter seven, verse four, he says this, that 144,000 Jews will be saved, 12,000 from every other 12 tribes. Now these 144,000, we'll look at these in a couple weeks, it's really fascinating, uh, who are saved, will have, create an evangelistic explosion on the globe, revival like we've never seen. And there will be Jews and Gentiles uh, who will be saved during the tribulation period, which is pretty incredible. So let me just try to illustrate to you where we're going, and then we'll come back. So we have the church age that's here. The event we're going to talk about today will be the rapture. At this point, the church, believers, will have, be up in the heavenlies. That's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. The beam of seed, marriage of the lamb, that part's happening. At the same time, period of time, there will be the tribulation, the seven years, which is going to be happening here on earth. Here's what I just kind of try to wrap our minds around, right? We have two things happening. Church will be raptured. We have these things happening in the heavenlies. And then the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the tribulation, what's happening during the seven years here on earth, the two events that are happening. So this kind of gives you an idea where we're, we're going over the next couple weeks with that. 
Now, this event of the rapture happens between Revelations chapter 3 and Revelations chapter 4. Remember Revelations chapter 3, it's John to the seven tribes, or seven churches in Asia. Chapter 4, we pick up all of a sudden the church is in the heavenlies. So here's the question, right? What happens between chapter 3 and chapter 4, right? Inquiring minds want to know what happened during these times. That's where I want to spend some time today. I want to give you three passages that give us insight into this thing that we call the rapture. Now, here's what's really interesting. The word rapture doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible in the same way the word trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. In fact, the word Bible doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. But we think the concepts are, are pretty clear. So let me try to lay this out for us today for better understanding. First time we hear it, it taught about this, Jesus is at a time with his disciples, and it's a difficult time. <clears throat> difficult evening where Jesus is revealing some strong truth. He reminds them that one of them amongst you is, is going to betray them. Reminds Peter that he's actually going to deny him three times. And then the biggest news of the evening, as Jesus is sharing with these 12, is that Jesus is going to be leaving them. So to say, as he shares these, these new truths, that they were troubled would be an understatement, right? There's a lot going on at, at this moment. So Jesus is going to ground their present in the promise of a future. Look what he says. John chapter 14. It says, let not your heart be troubled. Even though I've shared these three dramatic bombshells with you, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many rooms. It's a big, big place with lots and lots of rooms. For all of you audio adrenaline fans, thank you for the two of you. All right, if this were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He says, be encouraged. 1 Thessalonians 4, which is probably, the, the, when we think about this idea of the rapture, probably the biggest teaching uh, on this area, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And when the Bible says asleep, it refers to those who are dead. Those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we also who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will also be with the Lord. Therefore, it says again, encourage one another with these words, right? So the word we reminds us that Paul's talking to those that are alive, right? If he was talking to those that are dead, he would have said they, but he says we, that's there. So he teaches this idea that we're gonna be caught up in the clouds with the Lord. It's really interesting to his readers originally. They had no doubts. They weren't questioning, is this idea of the rapture really real or not? They assumed it was real, and so their mind begins to move quickly to the ramifications of this. Paul, so are you telling me, so what happens to my family members who have died, right? What happens to my friends? What happens to those that have been martyred for the faith? We talked a little bit about the impact of that uh, even last week. Are they going to miss this marvelous event, right? If we're alive, and that means we get raptured, does that mean those who are dead are going to miss this moment? It's really a great question, really. It's a compassionate question, right? I'm concerned. I understand this. But what happens to those that have passed away? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let me go back to that. Verse 13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus Christ, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of the command and with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So if the dead in Christ will rise first, right, then where are they now, right? Are, are they sitting in the grave in the ground just waiting for the, for the rapture to happen if they're going to rise first? Let me remind you again, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 says, Jesus teaches the principle really powerful. To be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord, right? Remember that the thief on, on the cross uh, with Jesus, and Jesus said to him what? Today you will be with me in paradise, there's no purgatory. There's no waiting room. You're, you're not just sitting in the ground waiting for Jesus to return. We know to be absent with the body means to be present with the Lord. Mark Hitchcock says it in this book, which may be helpful. He says this, Jesus will descend from heaven accompanied by the perfected spirits of the believers who have died. He will resurrect their bodies, now glorified, and the spirit of believers will be clothed in their new bodies. Here's kind of what he's trying to say. The idea that the spirit, when we die, our spirit will be in the presence of the Lord, but at the rapture, we will come and we'll be reunited with our glorified bodies, where we'll spend eternity in our glorified bodies. I don't know about you, I'm really thankful for that. I mean, I'm glad I'm gonna get a glorified body in heaven. I mean, the idea of doing this for eternity, <laughs> not too encouraging, you know what I'm saying? So amen, greatest news I've heard today as that's gonna be on there. But that's what he says. So your spirit will be united with your glorified body and that will be the, the form, so to speak, that we spend eternity. Let me give a couple of passages that give us insight into the, the rapture. First Corinthians chapter 15 says this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Verse 52, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable body must be put on the imperishable and the mortal body must be put on immortality, right? He's just saying, this physical body can't exist, what's perishable in, in the glories of heaven, right? There has to be a change and a transformation that's there. And he says, man, it's gonna happen for those of your life in the twinkling of an eye. Now, I don't know how quick a twinkling of an eye is, but I, but I know it's quicker than a second, right? Twinkling of an eye. Uh, the average person blinks 15,000 times a, a day. And so in one of those blinks, you're gonna be in the presence of the Lord, and what I love is about half of you just blinked right now. You did real slow just to see if it was going to happen, right? But it's, this is how quick, instantaneous that it's there. First Thessalonians chapter 4, but chapter 5 gives us a little bit more. We know it's going to be a blinking eye. We'll meet him in the, in the air. And in First Thessalonians chapter 5, Now concerning the time and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come, here's the key, like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for, the day to, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day, and we are not of the night nor of darkness. This idea he's teaching there is what we say at church a lot of time. It's the imminent return of the Lord. The idea that the Lord could return at, at any time. That there are no biblical prophecies that are waiting to be fulfilled before Christ can return. So the rapture, he says, the teaching is, it's going to be as sudden as a thief in the night. You won't know it. You won't expect it. It will be in one of those moments. 
He continues on in verse six in chapter five. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse nine, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, again, this is the key of it all, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I love that little phrase, verse nine, right? You are not destined to wrath. You are not created for the wrath. In other words, you're not destined to experience the tribulation. So what are we gonna be doing if we're not gonna be walk through those seven years together? What are we gonna be doing in the presence of the Lord at that time? So let's go to Revelations chapter four. We'll look at that today. Verse three. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and the one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carinium, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Imagery, symbolism. You heard that word rainbow. What, what did that conjure up in, in your mind, remembering from church teachings of old, right? The r- rainbow reminds us of God's covenant with, with Noah, Genesis chapter nine. God's symbolic promise that he never will again destroy the entire earth with a flood. And God would never destroy his creation. Judgment is about to fall. This is what the, I think the symbolism means in, in chapter four. Judgment is about to fall, but the rainbow reminds us that God is merciful even when he judges. The heavenlies were experiencing this and he knows in just a period of time this judgment will come. And usually a rainbow appears after the storm, but in Revelation chapter four, it appears before the storm. I wanna remind you of the mercy of God. And we're gonna see that theme throughout the next couple weeks in some of the darkest and, and most amazing, difficult times in human history, the, the mercy of God that comes through. In verse four, we continue on. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed with white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And the 24 elders that do, I I believe, the uh, interpretation of that is that this is the church or these are the believers. White garments, thrones, uh, crowns of gold are all symbols that we see over and over throughout scripture that are rewards for believers for how they live their lives. That the crowns, of gold are gonna be given to us, so what the Bible says is the Bema seat. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In the original language, in the Greek language, that word judgment seat that you see there is in, translated really Bema or Bema seat. And the Bema seat is this elevated platform in a meeting place or in an arena a judgment seat, the bema seat there, it's either where judgment is pronounced by the tribunal or rewards are given for those who have participated in a sporting event that has happened. Let me show you a picture. This is a bema seat from the ruins in Corinth. And you can see it's on the back there. It's this elevated place where either judgment is pronounced or rewards are given. We know at the bema seat, at this moment for believers... That part of that is we just saw that the 24 elders, that it'll be a place where rewards are given. The Bible talks about five different crowns that are reserved for those who are faithful to God 
in the work that he has during our lives. And these are all included in your notes at lexcity.info. But let me list, list these five for you quickly. It's an incorruptible crown, or it's known as the victor's crown. For those who discipline their bodies for the servant service of God. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. Another one is the crown of life. It's a martyr's crown. For those who have been faithful unto death. Third is the crown of glory. It's known as the shepherd's crown. For those who give their lives to teach the word. 1 Peter 5. Another one is the crown of righteousness. For those who live a righteous and holy life. And the fifth one is a crown of rejoicing. It's, it's, we call it the soul winner's crown, right? For those who have given themselves to winning people to Christ, 1 Thessalonians 2. So 1 Corinthians says, listen, there'll be rewards for how you live your life, crowns that come, but here are some of the, the things that you must do in order to receive these amazing crowns. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become a become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward, what we just talked about. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So this beam of seat, in the presence of God, can I remind you, this beam of seat, it's not a judicial seat, but it's a reward podium. It's not a sense that you will receive judgment for how you live, but you'll be rewarded for how you live your life. And the beauty is this. Even if your works are burned up, it says, even if through, there are moments through our own selfishness, our unfaithfulness, the things that we did for God really didn't count in the same way because we did them for the wrong purposes. The Bible says this. Even though those are passed away, be encouraged. You're going to receive the greatest reward of all. You receive eternity. Right? Your salvation is secure at this point. The wonderful blessing of heaven and, and forever with the Lord. So even though your things will be burned away, you too, but you will be spared is really what he's saying uh, along those things. So that's encouragement. Someday when we stand before God, there won't be a large big screen and all the things of your life will be played out in front of your grandma and the angels and all will be like, ooh, can't believe you got in here. You know, it's not that kind of a deal. This is not the judgment seat. <laughs> this is the beam seat that's reward for your faithfulness. And in a glorious day that that will be. Now we're going to come back to this idea of rewarding because the crowns that we receive in Revelations chapter 4, we're going to see this actually plays out in Revelations chapter 20 during the millennial reign. There's a, there's a correlation between our levels of authority and ways that we serve based on how we've been rewarded. So stay tuned for that. But the imminent return of the Lord, the rapture, right? It's when the, the groom returns for his bride. And the teaching that John would say to us, listen, it just says to us church, as believers, <laughs> the Lord's gonna return at any time. Are you ready? Are you living with expectation and excitement and anticipating that, di- that day? If your next blink is your last blink and then the next blink you stand before your creator, how are you doing in that moment? Are you comfortable with the way that you're living your life? All right, if not... What needs to change? What needs to change that we can look forward to that day with expectation rather than fear and regret? What are the relationships in your life that you just keep putting off that need to be restored, right? Where there's a need to be some forgiveness and some peace. What are the habits, the hangups, the hurts that just keep bringing you down? I'll, I'll deal with it later, I'll work. What are those things you keep putting off that you know that if today was the day you stood before the Lord, that you just, you want to experience victory in those areas, right? 
Who is that person in your life that you need to share Christ with that you keep saying, well, I'll get to that next year. Oh, after the pandemic, I'll get, and we have these, all these excuses, I'll get to, in a twinkling of an eye, we stand in the presence of the Lord. As we close out our time today, I want to take us back to the start of Revelation chapter 4. In the throne room that we sit, and God sits on the throne, and in chapter 4, we worship, and the worship is, is geared around the worship of our Creator. All the living creatures are in this throne room that are there. And if you go back and you read that, you'll see the representation of different animals that represent different things. We know the angels stand in the presence of the Lord, some with six wings, two that cover their face and two that cover their bodies, and they, they stand in, in worship of the Lord. We know the 24 elders, which would be us, the church. We sit there in the throne room before our Lord and Savior, and in unison, this is what's so amazing, the entire creation worships the creator. And then to me, one of the most beautiful moments that I think of is, Revelations tells us that we'll take the the thrones that God, the crowns that God has given us, and we'll lay it at the foot of the throne. Those things that God has rewarded for you for your faithful living, you'll say, listen, it's not because of me, it's because of what you've done, and we place them at the feet of the Savior in these beautiful moments. To close out our time, the beauty of imagery is it stirs the imagination and the emotion within us. So if you would, just close your eyes this morning. And as you think about Revelation chapter 24 in that glorious moment in the throne room where the creation worships the creator, I want you just to imagine the glory that awaits.